Hello and welcome to the Pandemic Podcast, a podcast from Deccan Herald in which we focus on COVID-19 and the news around it. I'm your host, Ahmed Sharif. Today is the 34th day of the lockdown in the country and this is our 22nd episode. In today's episode, we focus on the future of co-working spaces. We also bring you some news from business. At the time of recording this at 7am on April 27th, Monday, according to the data maintained by Deccan Herald, India has recorded more than 27,800 COVID-19 cases, with more than 1,600 new cases detected yesterday. At least 883 people have lost their lives to COVID-19. At the current rate of infections, globally, India is set to overtake Switzerland to reach the top 15th position by the end of today. Maharashtra registered 440 new cases yesterday to reach 8,068 total infections. The total cases in Gujarat have crossed 3,300. Delhi is about to enter the about 3K club with 2,918 cases as on Sunday. Now, India has nine states including Telangana and Andhra Pradesh in the about 1,000 cases list. New cases and deaths are rising in certain parts of the country. Experts from Indore and Ahmedabad say that a virulent L-type strain of the coronavirus could be behind it. Samples from Indore have been sent to National Institute of Virology, Pune, for confirmation. However, epidemiologists from Karnataka have debunked this theory, saying that the spike in cases ultimately depends on containment effort. Our health correspondent Akhil Karidal has more on the confusion. My name is Akhil Karidal. I cover science and defense for Deccan Herald. I also cover the coronavirus outbreak in Karnataka for the paper. On Sunday, with some states reeling from a higher number of COVID-19 deaths than others, some doctors were asking themselves if a more virulent form of the virus is responsible. In Madhya Pradesh, Indore Madhya Pradesh, for example, 57 people have died, leading to speculation that a mutated or a more virulent form of the SARS-CoV-2 virus was responsible. Now, samples from Indore will apparently be sent to the National Institute of Virology in Pune for further testing to see if this theory is right. Meantime, the situation in Gujarat is pretty dire. As of Sunday, the state had 3,071 cases and 133 deaths, which also led doctors here to speculate that the state was beset by an L-type of the virus, with some experts claiming that this is a strain of the virus more prevalent in Wuhan, China, which is the ground zero for the pandemic. Now, a report said, and I quote, The dominance of the more virulent L-type coronavirus strain as compared to the S-type 1 could be behind the high mortality rate in the state, which has reported 133 deaths so far. However, the report also adds at the same time that there's no research has been conducted to support this claim. All right. So, Bangalore is one of the science capitals of India, so I reached out to our experts in Bangalore about this. And the experts were blunt. They, were, they said that there's no varying strains of the virus in existence. Some of them were members, some of these people are members of the state official COVID task force, by the way. Okay, just, just to clarify. One prominent virologist was, was completely blunt. He says, all of our studies so far have shown that there's only one strain of the virus in India, which has a direct link to the Wuhan SARS-CoV-2 virus. All this talk of multiple strains is false, he said. And he attributed all the speculation to what he described as the Open University of WhatsApp. All right. Now, another expert on Karnataka's COVID task force added that containment measures ultimately dictated the spike of numbers in particular particular states. 
this is one reason why he says Karnataka is doing so well containing the, the disease because we acted soon. Anyway, what he says is virulence has little to do with the number of cases in a particular location or state. Viral spread ultimately comes down to containment. This is uh, Dr. Giridhar Babu. He's a pandemic expert. Uh, he also goes on to add that just because a hotspot emerges, it doesn't necessarily mean that there is a more virulent strain of the virus at that location. If safety measures are not enacted in time, the disease will proliferate within a community, especially if the area is densely populated. Now, and he pointed to the example of Maharashtra, for example, or in Mumbai specifically, which is a naval air and road hub. And the disease proliferated there, he says, in greater numbers be before the authorities could take proper containment measures. And he also pointed out the example of Hongasandra here in Bangalore, where these metro workers were living in close proximity with each other and the virus, and only a series of subsequent hospital trips finally revealed to everybody that the, that the, that the presence of the virus and the disease existed there. Meantime, an infectious diseases expert from the Indian Institute of Science also pointed out that it's too early to determine if the disease in India had mutated to a more virulent form. All right. Now, there have been, uh, there been studies, and there's been one study, at least in the United States, that, that claims that um, the spike glycoprotein, which is the responsible, you know, it, it is actually responsible for creating the infection, has mutated in certain forms, uh, leading to more virulent forms, etc., etc. But some, some scientists are saying that, you know, a lot of these papers are not peer-reviewed, or they're purely hypothetical, it's creating a lot of media sensation. The media is picking up on this and sensationalizing it, but none of it is really, there's not enough evidence to show any of this yet because there's no proper studies have been done. Anyway, as far as India goes, it turns out that we only submitted 28 viral genomic sequences to the International uh, you know, Genomic Bank for analysis. Now, this is now other countries, you know, the cumulative total of other countries is apparently over 10,000 sequences, right? So 28 is a very small number. So, so what this infectious diseases expert is saying is that, you know, we've submitted so little genomic sequencing. We've done so little genomic sequencing that it's, it's, we can't even tell. We have, we have no evidence to even determine if a mutation has occurred, much less speculate that there's a more virulent form causing havoc, right? So that, that's the consensus of the experts in Bangalore. And, you know, the consensus is that containment is ultimately responsible for, for determining the spread of the virus. And if containment measures are not properly enacted in time, then the disease spread has had nothing to do whether, uh, about whether or not uh, there's a mutated strain cause, causing havoc there. Uh, that's it. That's it. I hope you enjoyed this explanation of the story. Thank you. Bye. To read the story written by Akhil Karidal, check out www.deckandherald.com. In mega cities like Bengaluru, where there are a lot of startups that don't have big budgets but only big ideas, they found the idea of co-working spaces attractive. Co-working spaces evolved as a solution to the expensive office spaces that startups could not afford. With COVID-19 almost mandating social distancing as a norm for the future, the co-working space sector is trying to come up with workable solutions. Vikas Lakhani, who represents the industry body of the co-working space sector, talks to my colleague El Subramani about how the pandemic has impacted the co-working space and if the sector has to compete with a potential work-from-home option that could be prevalent post the pandemic. This year is supposed to be a boom year for co-working space in the country. An estimated 13 million people 
were supposed to join the co-working space, which was growing at a very steady pace. Just when things were going fine, the industry has been hit very badly by the COVID-19 situation. With us is Vikas Lakani. He is one of the core members of Indian Workspace Association, an industry body formed by some of the top companies in the co-work space business. He's also the co-founder of Insta Office. Because how badly the industry has been hit, we know that uh, you know there are a lot of questions to be answered in terms of how this is going to sustain in the face of uh, uh, social distancing and other norms that are going to come up uh, post the situation. But right now, what is the condition? I'll just quickly uh, hit upon the second point, which you said, how, so you're absolutely right, how it's still sort of early um, to make any speculation there, how things are going to pan out in the light of the new protocols or the sets of processes or how people need to behave uh, or how people need to operate in the post-COVID world. Uh, but to address the first part, which is how it has impacted us, um, See, we've been as uh, badly impacted as any other industry. And uh, why we've been impacted, the reasons may be unique to our industry. Having said that, the problem is uh, still common. I mean, it's a common problem that everybody's facing at this point. Uh, the reasons how we've been impacted may be somewhat uh, unique to us. But I think I, I would break it down in uh, you know, a couple of uh, sort of reasons. The first is, which is sort of a macro level that the entire economic cycle is shut. Nobody's working. No, I mean, if the productivity cycle of an economy is suspended, you cannot really expect any business to happen. Now, the second, which is somewhat uh, not unique, but that is more sort of uh, in contextual to co-working spaces. See, we are a service provider. We are an intermediary in a fairly long and a high stakes value. We as an industry have also always been extremely collaborative. That's sort of our DNA. So all our clients um, have sort of seen us as a variable cost option. And one of the first things that most clients want to sort of scale back on is the cost that they can actually uh, stop during this time. And this is what a lot of the clients have actually done. Even in the clients, what we see is, at least, you know, some of the companies that I know of, what I can see is that 20 to 25% of the clients are fairly clear and they know that we are not going to really act for the next three to six months and they've completely stopped what they're going to do in near future. Uh, there are certain, maybe again, 20 to 25% clients who are trying to renegotiate or open up discussions to really how we can come to a solution but I still see, which is a fairly, fairly large part of our member base, which is, again, suspended. They, they're just waiting for this to get over. So effectively, to summarize, I, I think we've been impacted, of course, at a macro level, the cash cycle or the business cycle is completely stopped. But the second is, which is more sort of contextual to co-working spaces, is that we are seen as a service provider and a variable cost option. And uh, this is one of the areas that most of the clients have tried to scale back on in the immediate term. One of the uh, things that uh, that we see happening also is that uh, you've been a you've been a great source of support for many early stage startup companies, and uh, uh, the cost saving that uh, the co working space has brought has been one of the reasons why many of them are able to grow. How do you think that uh, they are going to be sort of uh, impacted now that work from home? has come as an option? Actually, no. Uh, I mean, I, I would speak on my behalf really here. 
I see that as a, as a big opportunity uh, for co-working spaces or workplace, you know, flexible workspaces options. When we talk of work from home, I think work from home is a very, very uh, micro concept. But what we are really talking of is remote working. Uh, I think in the post-COVID world, we are going to see a massive acceptance of remote working. Work from home is actually going to be a part of it. There will be a section of the population which will be able to work from home. Their jobs, their kind of large part of the productive population or kind of jobs do not allow work from home. But yes, even in those cases, if you see, there is wider acceptance of remote working. So I think the two things from a theme thematic perspective, what's going to change is this decision making from a physical uh, office perspective, there's going to be more and more localization. Yeah. Wherever people stay, they would want offices to be around there. They don't want to go travel long distances. Second, it's going to be flexible. So this is where I see there's a unique opportunity for co-working spaces and co-working spaces or flexible workspace options are actually going to be fairly fast on the recovery curve the moment people get back to business. So work from home, I see actually, um, I think there is going to be a, probably some contraction in demand, but I see a bigger opportunity there in the wider acceptance of remote working as a concept. One of the express objectives of uh, the Indian Workspace Association, which you are part of, uh, is to design strategies uh, for the post-COVID and the post-lockdown situation. What are the kind of uh, things that you are looking at in terms of, uh, you know, how you know you're going to strategize your business uh, after? Uh, sure. Uh, the so is see, over? we I it's we, we're still in early days, um, and we're still trying to refine our agenda and how do we really. Uh, you know, address defined protocols or practices in the post-COVID world. So we ourselves are fairly early in that stage. And at the same time, how the post-COVID world is going to shape up is, you know, we can really speculate on that. I, you know, I, I just take a step back. I, I think risk can be or uncertainty can be actually looked at in three different ways. Uh, one is that how an event is going to shape up. Second is the uncertainty of the outcome. And the third is the uncertainty of how people are going to respond to it. I think in this case, at this point, we're not even certain of how the event is going to shape up. So, but to, to sort of give you slightly more context, how we are seeing this at this point, the immediate priority is both on the commercial and the logistical and the safety and hygiene side, we can define practices uh, which are sustainable and commercially prudent for the industry. Second, what you know, how do we solve any disagreements or how do we solve uh, divergent expectations from clients, landlords, vendors, employees, different sort of stakeholders. As I mentioned, we are a, you know, intermediary in a fairly long value chain and a high stake value chain. In the post-COVID world, again, I think there's going to be, a, I would break it into two. One is the commercial and the safety, hygiene, protocols, processes, uh, you know, configurations, uh, we, we'll try to have a more sort of uh, collaborative approach towards defining these protocols in the post-COVID world. Where do you think the government can help you and inter I mean, intervene in, in, in this situation? Do you really think that uh, uh, there could be some sort of a policy support from them or uh, 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 some sort of a financial support? There, there are multiple places where there could be a support. And, uh, you know, we, we've tried to liaise with them in the last few weeks. Uh, we've written to them formally. Uh, seeking their support and such letters have been acknowledged as well. 
but to just sort of summarize where I think we can get support from the government is one is fairly uh, standard, which are not again unique to us getting faster TDS returns, uh, any dues that may be pending with the government, uh, if those could be actually given faster, uh, more sort of again contextual to co-working spaces. See, we are again a service provider. There have been a lot of talk around rent waivers for restaurants, retail industry and builders and developers have openly announced that uh, there are waiving rents for retails or you know, uh, hospitality businesses or restaurants. At least one of the areas where we would seek uh, a very important or a strong support is that if we could get notifications or guidance around getting rent waivers first from multiple others which, which have costs which are fixed in nature. We as a business have very high fixed costs, right? Now, if we could get support, notification, if we could get guidance from the government on getting these costs waived or getting these you know, substantial comfort or relief around these costs, that is really, really going to help the industry in short to long term. Even earlier as an industry and even now, we've been saying that whatever relief and comfort that we are seeking at this point, that is entirely to pass all of those, large part of those comfort or relief to our clients so that we can support them. So effectively really optimizing the whole value chain. Anybody tries to maximize in this value chain, you're going to compromise the you know, entire industry. So I think these are the places around our cost where the government can really support us. Vikas, thank you very much for joining us and uh, good luck and stay safe. Thank you so much, everybody. Now let's listen to Samiksha who will give us the week's update on business and economy. India has completed one month of lockdown to battle the coronavirus pandemic during which the equity indices surged, the rupee turned extremely volatile and bond yields eased. This is Samiksha and today I will tell you how different markets behaved in one month of the lockdown while also talking about the Franklin Templeton debacle and the current state of unemployment in the country. The rupee continued to be volatile during the past month, trading in the range of 74.85 and 76.88 against the US dollar. The rupee has touched its life lows multiple times in the past month of lockdown, despite the Reserve Bank trimming the currency market timings by almost four hours with effect from April 7. The crude oil, the primary determinant of the rupee value, has been touching historic lows due to subdued demand, with the West Texas intermediate futures even touching negative. However, the depreciation of the rupee was driven by the outflow of foreign funds all this while. Coming to equities, despite a steep rise in the unemployment rate and a substantial decline in the labour force participation as the economy has come to a near-abrupt halt, the equity markets have seen a steep rise. It was primarily on account of low base and expectations of a second and bigger stimulus package. Sensex and Nifty surged by 22.2% and 17.3% respectively. The Indian indices outperformed global peers by huge margins. In the due course, the equity investors have recovered one-third of the wealth that they had lost in the March mayhem, recovering 18 lakh crore rupees of the 58 lakh crore rupees. Despite this, Indian markets continue to be in the bear territory, with indices down over 25% from their life highs. 
However, the buying continues to be driven by domestic investors, with foreign funds withdrawing a net of 16,291.72 crore rupees from the Indian markets during this period. Let us now look at the bond market. The yields on the government securities have fallen by 32 basis points in the past month. The primary factors that drove the yield lower are RBI rate cuts, safe haven demand, OMO operations, surplus liquidity in the banking system, and expectation of additional measures by the RBI to support the relief measures taken by the government. However, foreign fund outflows, lower trading volumes, and an increase in government borrowings have limited the fall in the yields. The US and UK 10-year government bond yields, however, have witnessed a sharper fall in yields than Indian government bonds. This is due to the rush to safe-haven buying of the US and UK government securities by global investors. In what seems to be a panic reaction to the lockdown, people across the country appear to be stocking up on cash. According to DH analysis of data available with the Reserve Bank of India, currency with people has increased by 1.35 lakh crore rupees, 6% since the collapse of the private sector lender Yes Bank in early March. Currency with the public stood at 23.91 lakh crore rupees as on April 10, 2020, compared to 22.56 lakh crore rupees at the beginning of March. Bank deposits have turned out to be the preferred option for risk-averse retail investors, despite a drastic fall in interest rates, as equity markets are reeling under heavy sell-off in recent months. Meanwhile, mutual fund investors owning up to 26,000 crore rupees were left in a lurch after Franklin Templeton Asset Management, in an unprecedented move, decided to wind up as many as six high-risk mutual fund schemes. This has led to analysts advising caution. As on date, the six schemes collectively had 25,856 crore rupees assets under management. All these schemes were high-risk, high-return schemes with many high-net-worth individuals investing in them. The move came after the six schemes saw redemption worth 4,997 crore rupees in just 22 days. At the end of March, these schemes had assets under management of 30,853 crore rupees, making up 1.4% of 22.26 lakh crore rupees of mutual fund industries total assets under management. There are apprehensions in the market that due to the slowdown, there could be more defaults. Coming to unemployment, the average monthly unemployment rate in the country more than tripled in the past 30 days of the lockdown to battle the deadly virus, breaching the unprecedented 20% mark. The 30-day moving average unemployment rate in the country, as of date, stands at an astounding 23.6%, according to data available with the Centre for Monitoring Indian Economy. The number was at 7.58% on March 25, when the nationwide lockdown was announced. That's all from DH Business today. We'll be back with more updates next Monday. Stay tuned. That's it in today's episode. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast. Do rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. 
Follow us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify and many of your other favorite platforms. Do share this podcast with your friends, family and on social media. For latest updates on COVID-19 and other news, log on to www.deckandherald.com. Follow our social media handles on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram and YouTube. Check out our e-paper at www.deckandheraldepaper.com. To be updated on the go, follow our Telegram channel t.me slash deckandheraldnews for instant updates. Take care. Stay safe. Stay indoors.